Our Father, we do not take the privilege of prayer for granted. We know that you have opened the channel that we might come into your presence, that we might offer you thanksgiving, and that we might make our petition. We realize, Lord, that everything in this life which is good and right comes from our Father in heaven. Every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights. And so, Lord, we come to you today in humility, acknowledging that we are only good as we have the imputed righteousness of Christ upon us. And we ask that the Spirit of God who has been given to those who are born again as that guarantee of the day in which we will stand in your presence, that he will instruct us, that he will bind the evil one, that he will not be able to cause any disturbance or uh, remove any seed that you might plant through your spirit. We ask that your word will go forth in strength and power in this class, in the service, and in the various other Sunday school classes this morning. And we ask, Lord, that you will just bless the reading of your word and the study of it and empower it to our minds and our hearts to accomplish your goodwill. In Jesus' name, amen. In the 18th chapter of the book of Numbers, we read last week of the provisions for the priests and the duties of the priests. And this chapter also deals with the duties of the Levites and the provisions of the Levites, or for the Levites. The duties are, are not enumerated as they had been in the book of Leviticus. They're just referred to and the responsibility of the priests and of the Levites is highlighted. But the provision for them is, is underlined here, particularly the provision of their, their daily sustenance, the meat, the olive oil, the wine, and the grain that was to be theirs is described here as how they would receive that. It's a sacrifice given by the people, and they are to receive a portion of it for their daily need. I'd like to read verses 12 and 13 of the 18th chapter of Numbers. All the best of the fresh oil, and all the best of the fresh wine and of the grain, the first fruits of those which they give to the Lord, I give them to you. The first ripe fruits of all that is in their land, which they bring to the Lord, shall be yours. Every one of your household who is clean may eat it. And that, of course, means ceremonially clean. God has set up a system whereby he is providing for those that serve his tabernacle, both the Levites and then the priests specifically. And he is taking this from the sacrifices, the offerings given by the people of Israel to the Lord God. Now, God is doing this because as we read these first 20 verses last week, if you weren't here, you, of course, didn't hear that. But in the 20th verse, let me reemphasize the emphasis I made last time. The Lord said to Aaron, you shall have no inheritance in their land, nor own any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance amongst the sons of Israel. God would give to the nation of Israel portions of the land. And uh, what today we know as the country of Jordan, at least a portion of it, 
and then the nation of Israel today. This was all divided up amongst the 12 tribes. And each of the tribes received a portion. In some cases, like in the case of Manasseh, they received a portion on each side of the Jordan. But uh, most of them were not divided like that. And so Issachar had a portion, and Simeon had a portion, and Judah had a portion, and Ephraim had a portion. But Levi did not have a portion per se. The tribe of Levi was given 48 cities, which were scattered amongst the other 12 tribes. The priests themselves had not even that provision, except as they came from one of the particular uh, cities themselves. But God's provision for them was, as we read here, the sacrifices that were made by the nation of Israel. These would be the portion for the priests. And as we'll see a little bit later in the passage, how God would also provide in addition for the Levites as well. This was his way. I will be your portion, God said. And as I tried to emphasize last time, we can transfer that to us. We are priests of the living God in the sense that we, there is the priesthood of the believer. That was one of the main issues, of course, of the Reformation, that you don't need a priestly class to stand between you and God now because Jesus is our high priest. And so we can go directly to him. And so as the Lord was the portion for the priests and the Levites, so the Lord is our portion today. And we don't trust in some earthly land holding as being our eternal possession. Uh, we trust simply in the Lord our God and heaven is our eternal possession. It was that for Israel too. But the nation of Israel was a picture of the coming eternal kingdom. And that was supposed to be theirs in perpetuity had they lived in obedience to God, which they of course did not. Further provision is described in verses 14 to 19. I would like to read those, beginning in verse 14 of the 18th chapter of Numbers. Every devoted thing in Israel shall be yours. Every first issue of the womb of all flesh, whether man or animal, which they offer to the Lord shall be yours. Nevertheless, the firstborn of man you shall surely redeem, and the firstborn of unclean animals you shall surely redeem. And as to their redemption price, from a month old you shall redeem them by your valuation, five shekels in silver, according to the shekel of the sanctuary, which is 20 geras. Now we've talked about this before. A shekel of silver is, was a very small amount. It was about a half an ounce. And so you divide a half an ounce into 20 uh, <coughs> subunits. We're talking about very tiny little units here. But these weren't a rich people. Uh, yes, they brought gold and silver out of the land of Egypt, but I mean, they weren't on a money economy as we are. They were a barter, a trade economy, basically. And so silver and gold was not terribly plentiful. And they didn't have money in the sense that we have money. Of course, paper money wouldn't be invented for thousands of years, and coins would not even be invented until the 7th century before Christ. And so this kind of money was not known amongst them. So this, these were usually in ingots or granular form and, and divided into 20ths. And this was the way they carried on the financing, you might say, of the tabernacle. And so this was how they would redeem the firstborn of children and redeem the firstborn of unclean animals. But the firstborn of the ox, this is verse 17, of an ox or the firstborn of a sheep or the firstborn of a goat, you shall not redeem. They're holy. You shall sprinkle their blood on the altar and shall offer up their fat in smoke as an offering by fire for a soothing aroma to the Lord. 
and their meat shall be yours. It is yours like the breast of the wave offering and like the right thigh. All of the offerings of the holy gifts which the sons of Israel offer to the Lord I have given to you and to your sons and to your daughters with you as a perpetual allotment. It is an everlasting covenant of salt before the Lord to you and to your descendants. Then the Lord said to Aaron, You shall have no inheritance in their land, nor own any portion among them. I am your portion and your inheritance amongst the sons of Israel. The firstborn belonged to the priest. The firstborn of children, of course, could not be sacrificed. Human sacrifice was, was anathema to Israel. It was hated by God. And so the firstborn of a child had to be redeemed by the family, which meant they paid to the tabernacle. The firstborn of unclean animals, likewise, could not be sacrificed. They were unclean. And therefore, they had to be redeemed with a price to be paid to the tabernacle. The money would then be given to the priests. The firstborn of unclean animal, I mean of clean animals, were to be sacrificed in accordance with the Levitical laws. And you go through the book of Leviticus and it describes all of this, particularly in the first seven chapters, where it talks about the sin offering and the love offering and, and all the different offerings which were made, uh, were to be made by Israel. Uh, these were sacrificed in the prescribed manner. The meat then, the lean meat was given to the priest, to the sons, to the daughters, to the family, and this would provide their sustenance. This was to be permanent. This was to be done in perpetuity. They were to receive the money from the unclean animals and from the firstborn of people, and they actually received the meat of the clean animals, which were, were literally sacrificed. Their blood poured out and the fat was burned, and everything according to the Levitical prescriptions was done. And uh, the first of the first fruits of the land, the grain, the wine, and, and so forth, as we read. This was their daily provision. They couldn't run down to the local Raley's or the local Safeway, you know, and, and buy food. Uh, there was no market system like that. And that's why they were an agricultural people. They provided for themselves. And so how do you provide for a people who weren't in that system? That is, weren't actually raising animals for themselves. This is the means by which God did it. God tells us that he is our provision, and God is a very practical God. And he explained how that would actually work out for the priests, and then, as we'll see, for the Levites as well. And in our case, God does the same thing. He provides for us as we walk faithfully with him. Now, it's very interesting here because, as I read in that um, 19th verse, uh, God emphasized that this was to be a permanent provision, a provision of preservation, because he calls it a covenant of salt. Now, salt in some sacrifices was used as part of the sacrifice. It was poured onto the altar and, and burned also. But I don't think that's what's being referred to here. I think the covenant of salt is a symbolic statement because to the ancient society, salt was very important. Salt, of course, made food savory. It made it tasty, and therefore it was a valuable commodity for that reason. But salt also had a medicinal value. It symbolized cleanliness, and it symbolized virtue. I think more specific to this particular statement, though, <clears throat> is the fact that it symbolized preservation, and therefore the implication is perpetuity. So I think we could read in that uh, passage where God 
calls it an everlasting covenant of salt, we could say it is an everlasting covenant of preservation before the Lord for you and, and to your children. And, and this is the concept here, because as the people walked in obedience and did these things exactly as God had ordained them to be, they were preserved. He had promised to provide their needs. He had promised to protect them from their enemies. He promised to keep them in the land. And as they walked in obedience, everything would fall into place as God had ordained it to be. So they would be preserved. They would have children, and their children would have children, and they would always occupy the land, and they would be the witness of God. They would be the salt of the earth. But of course, as we know very well, they weren't constantly obedient. And we have the tragic story of the Old Testament, the tragic story of the Samuel, you know, that's written in the books of Samuel and of Kings and Chronicles, and then Ezra and Nehemiah, and, and the whole story of the Old Testament. We realize that these people, although given the promises of God and, and shown how to walk with Him and given the power to do it, they fail. Well, let's go on with the 21st verse of the 18th chapter, verses 21 through 24. And to the sons of Levi, Behold, I have given all the tithe in Israel for an inheritance, in return for their service, which they perform, the service of the tent of meeting. And the sons of Israel shall not come near the tent of meeting again, lest they bear their sin and die. Only the Levites shall perform the service of the tent of meeting, and they shall bear their iniquity. It shall be a perpetual statute throughout all your generations among the sons of Israel, they shall have no inheritance. For the tithe of the sons of Israel, which they offer as an offering to the Lord, I have given to the Levites for an inheritance. Therefore, I have said concerning them, they shall have no inheritance amongst the sons of Israel. The duties, the provisions, and the responsibility of the priests were enumerated in the previous passage and now they are for the non-priest Levites. Now remember, the tribe of Levi was set aside from amongst the nation of Israel. There, of course, originally were 12 sons of Jacob. And Levi was one of those sons. But because God chose that tribe to become the priestly tribe, it's as if he withdrew them out of the 12 sons. And in the place, the tribe of Joseph was doubled. And his two sons became the, the, the uh, patriarchs, tribal patriarchs, Ephraim and Manasseh. And so by doubling one tribe, you still have 12 in addition to Levi. So you could say you have 13 tribes. But the tribe of Levi would not be considered amongst the other 12. It would be considered separately, as we keep reading here. And so God's provision for them will be different from his provision for the other 12. The provision for the priests was clearly enumerated. This is the very first time that it is specifically stated in Scripture that the tithe would be used to provide for the, for the Levite class, for that tribe that the tithe would be used for that reason. You wonder, of course, in those days, if people tithed under the tabernacle, what did you do with it? <laughs> what does the tabernacle do with anything? It's just a building, you know. Well, obviously, that uh, wouldn't work. And so it's, it's given to the Levites. 
in exchange for their faithful service to the tabernacle, they would receive the tithe from the other 12 tribes. Now, in, in theory, anybody can herd sheep. Anybody can farm the ground. But only the Levites could perform the service of the tabernacle. I mean, that is spelled out in this passage clearly. No one else was allowed to. Only the Levites could do this. And since facilitating the relationship between God and Israel was the most important thing anyone could do in Israel, it was only fair that the other tribes should be taxed to pay for that service. Now, you and I live in a country where the service of the pastorate is considered by most people to be one of the least important jobs one can do. You know, if you can't do anything else, you can become a preacher or a teacher, you know. <clears throat> and this is many people's mentality. You know, the important people are the driving barons of industry, <laughs> you know. Uh, the CEOs of the big corporations, they're the important people. Uh, the pastor is just kind of somebody who tags along over here and, you know, he's the one that can go first. I mean, you can do without him first because he is viewed as, in our society, as being, you know, just kind of a frill, a froth, you know, to the whole thing. Rather than seeing them as the very heart of what God is doing, which is the most important thing which is happening. You know, CEOs come and CEOs go, right? <laughs> As they have rather recently from McDonald's and from Apple and from whatever, you know. Disney, I guess. Didn't, didn't they recently replace the one at Disney? Oh, they need to, but they haven't. <laughs> okay. But, but, you know, they come and go. So what? You know, generation after generation. But those that are in the service of the Lord are really the people that society can least do without, even if society doesn't view it that way. As we read in verse 22, none of the men of the other tribes was allowed to carry on any of the service of the tabernacle. It was the exclusive area of responsibility for the tribe of Levi. From that moment on, from the moment God picked that tribe, that was to be their responsibility. In fact, it says that if any non-Levite carries on some of the service of the tabernacle, both he and the Levite that allows him to do it would bear his guilt before God. God would not accept it. Now, if you go back to the book of Leviticus, near the end of the book, it tells you that Israel was to give a tithe which constituted 10% of the of the crop that came in that year or of the increase of the herd for that year. 10% was to be given to the Lord. Now as you go further in, in the Old Testament, you discover that other sort of like tithes were added too. And that became the, the tax system for both the government and as well as for the tabernacle. But given to the tabernacle was to be 10% of the crop or of the increase of the herd. Now there are 12 tribes who were to tithe, okay, 12 tribes. This of course meant that in theory, the Levites who were one tribe and the tabernacle would be well supplied if you have 12 tribes contributing, right? 12 times 10%, 120%, you know, theoretically, that would go to provide for just one tribe. And this would be 
heightened by the fact that Levi was the very smallest tribe in Numbers. You may remember as we went through the first part of this book that exclusive of the tribe of Levi, the average of the other 12 tribes was 50,000 males from the age of 20 upward. 50,000 males. Well, we're told that of the tribe of Levi, from one month old up, there were only 22,000. So if you figure from there, cutting out those that are 19, 18, 17, 16, and, and just give a little bit for, uh, you know, to, to make sure you cover it, you could say there were 12,000. 12,000 males uh, who would be heads, could become held heads of household uh, in the tribe of Levi. 12 tribes with 50,000, one tribe with 12,000. Well, it doesn't take a genius in math to figure out that what you're looking at here is about 2% of the population. Levi would constitute 2% of the population, and they were to receive 10% from the other, nation, uh, other tribes. So you think, they should therefore have been adequately provided for, and the tabernacle should have been adequately provided for, and there should have been no problems. Should have been. That's the way the math works out. Unfortunately, people don't live by math most of the time. We have studied Israel so far. And we have noted that virtually, I mean, I, I didn't try to figure this out month by month, but it's almost like clockwork that they decide to disobey, right? They, they disobeyed in everything so far that God has commanded them to do. So what's going to say they won't disobey in this too? Well, I think they probably were just as disobedient here as they were in any other area. And therefore, you can imagine that probably the Levites were not exactly living high on the sheep, that definitely not hog, <laughs> high on the sheep. They, they probably didn't have a superabundance of anything, and I don't think that the tabernacle was overly provided for. Many so-called Christians are in the same category. Stingy with God's work, just as the Israelites were 3,000 years ago. I, I quoted last time, if you were here, I quoted a verse to you. I'd, I'd like to go back and read it in context. Fourth chapter of Philippians. I read there last week in talking about God being the provider for his people. God would provide for the priests. And by extrapolation, we could say God will provide for us. Because we read in the 19th verse of Philippians 4 that my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches in glory in Christ Jesus. Now the question is, is that a blanket statement made by God to all Christians? Well, you discover, I think, that virtually every promise in Scripture is conditional. Every promise in Scripture has a context. And this one also has a context. So let me back up to the 14th verse. Paul says, Nevertheless, you have done well to share with me in my affliction. And you yourselves know, how, know Philippians, that at the first preaching of the gospel, after I departed from Macedonia, no church shared with me in the matter of giving and in receiving, but you alone. For even in Thessalonica, you sent a gift more than once for my needs. Not that I seek the gift itself, but I seek for the profit which increases to your account. But I have received everything in full and have abundance. 
and I am amply supplied, having received from Epaphroditus what you have sent, a fragrant aroma, acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, and my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. The context is that if you are a person or a church given over to sacrificial giving, a fragrant aroma, acceptable sacrifice, well-pleasing to God, then my God shall supply all of your needs according to his riches and glory in Christ Jesus. It is not our birthright because we become Christians that God's going to carry out all these promises in our lives if we are not obedient. We must live in obedience if we want to lay the claim, lay claim to the promises of Scripture. My God will supply all of my needs if I have a spirit of generosity, if I have a spirit of obedience, if God can call upon me to bless someone in need. If I'm going to say, oh no, I mean, I can't do that. I mean, I, there's just no way I can help that person. Well, then what's God going to do? You know, we're stingy when he calls upon us to do what he wants us to do, then don't expect him to pour out, you know, full measure, overflowing to us if we're not willing to be God's instrument to bless others. Because how does God bless us? Usually through someone else, right? I mean, generally speaking, most of us have not had the, you know, the Elijah experience of having birds fly in and drop food in your mouth. Generally speaking, the provision has come somehow through other people. This will be true for Israel. As Israel obeys and tithes as they were supposed to tithe to provide for the Levites and provide for the priests so that their needs were met, then God blessed them. But when they didn't do that, then all manner of trouble came upon them financially as well as otherwise. Many times we are, as Christians, in financial straits. Not every time. You know, sometimes it's because we've done some pretty dumb things. But uh, sometimes it's simply because we, are, we have a spirit of stinginess with, with the Lord. And so he's just going to let us squirm a little while, you know, and live with the fruit of our stinginess. I, I think, on the other hand, it doesn't mean because we give everything away all the time that God's going to make us millionaires. What's the old, who, I don't remember who said it, but uh, it's often been quoted that, you know, we shovel it out, but God shovels it in, and he's got a bigger shovel, you know. Well, I, I really am troubled by the uh, preachers on the television who say, well, you know, if you give us a dollar, God will give you ten. You give us ten dollars, he'll give you a hundred. And if you give us a hundred, he'll give you a thousand. Well, I don't find that in here. <laughs> There's no formula. Uh, it, it, everything is dependent on our heart, our spirit, our desire. What are we doing this for? You know, if we feel our arm is being twisted by this guy, you know, that if you don't do this, God's going to curse you, that doesn't necessarily engender a spirit of, of uh, generosity. It comes because we love God. And he has generously given us all things, especially the Spirit of God who inhabits us and the salvation which he so freely gave. If he has given us so generously, we should have this spirit of generosity. And for some of us, that's hard. You know, for me, I'm, I, I'm partly Scotch by background, and I'm very Scotch by nature. And, and it's, it's hard, you know. And, but, you know, the Lord works on us all. And, and brings us to a place where he can work through us. And in response to that, he blesses us. And I don't think there's any formula, like one, 10 times or anything else. But uh, 
when we, when we use that verse in Philippians chapter 4, verse 19, that's always remember to keep it in context. Well, let's go on with um, the next verses, the last verses in the, 25th in the 18th chapter of uh, Numbers, verse 25. <clears throat> then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Moreover, you shall speak to the Levites and say to them, when you take from the sons of Israel the tithe, which I have given you from them for your inheritance, then you shall present an offering from it to the Lord, a tithe of the tithe. And your offering shall be reckoned to you as the grain from the threshing floor or the full produce from the wine vat. So you shall present, also present an offering to the Lord from your tithes, which you receive from the sons of Israel, and from it you shall give the Lord's offering to Aaron the priest. Out of all your gifts you shall present <clears throat> every offering due to the Lord from all the best of them, the sacred part of them. You shall say to them, when you have offered from it the best of it, then the rest shall be reckoned to the Levites as the product of the threshing floor and as the product of the wine vat. And you may eat it anywhere <clears throat> you and your household Anywhere, you and your households, for it is your compensation returned for your service in the tent of meeting. And you shall bear no sin by reason of it, when you have offered the best of it. But you shall not profane the sacred gifts of the sons of Israel, lest you die. So what you've got here is the people of Israel tithing 10% to the Levites. The Levites, in turn, tithe 10% to the priests. The priest, in turn, ties 10% and puts it on the altar of sacrifice. Nobody is exempt from the gift. Now, what is interesting is that the previous sections in this chapter have been addressed to Aaron. But this particular section is addressed to Moses. Since the Levites were to give their tithe to Aaron as high priest, it would be much more readily accepted as the word of God if it didn't come from Aaron's mouth but it came from Moses' mouth. Do you know how hard it is for the pastor of the church to get up and preach on giving? It's really hard for the pastor to do that because he draws his salary from this giving, rightly so, biblically so. It's kind of like it's hard for me to go around and invite people to my class, or to this class, I shouldn't call it my class, because I'm saying, won't you come and listen to me? You know, I, I feel really funny about that. And that's why I'm very grateful for the Drapers and, and the Tomfers and others who, who do the calling when it needs to be done to, to people, to invite them uh, here. To preach on this subject is hard, and, and no pastor loves to do it. In fact, most pastors would love to just avoid the subject altogether if they could, but it's, it should never be avoided. Because it, it's in Scripture over and over and over again. And it's powerfully in Scripture. And, and we have a tendency to, to forget unless we've come to that place where we automatically do what we know is right. And, and we have a mindset committed to the first fruits. This belongs to God and I will not touch it for my own use. And that was very important for Israel to follow this principle. Just because the Levites were doing the work of the tabernacle did not exempt them from the tithe. Doing the Lord's work cannot be substituted for giving to the Lord's work financially. 
Uh, there was a fellow I knew years ago in another church who thought every time he did something <clears throat> for the church, that meant he could keep some of his own tithe. It's a privilege to serve the Lord's work, you know. You're not paying yourself for it. Those doing the Lord's work cannot substitute that work for giving to the Lord's work. Those in the ministry are just as responsible to be financially generous as is everyone else. And that is illustrated here. The Levites garnered in the 10%. They couldn't just say, aha, that's our just due because, as the Lord said here, this is our recompense, so we can keep it all. No, they were to give their 10% then to the priest. And the priest couldn't say, well, we're the top of the line. There's nowhere to do, nothing to do with it. No, they had to put that on the sacrifice and on the sacrifice and on the altar. And what you discover in every instance was this, and you read that passage again and think about it. The very best was to be given to the Lord. The Lord would receive only the best of the grain, the best of the wine, the best of the oil, the best of the animals. And then what happens? The Levites are to give the best of that to the priest. The priest was to give the best of what he received on the altar to the Lord. Doesn't that fly against our own nature? Our own nature is to keep the best for ourselves. And if there's anything we're going to give away, it's going to be the worst. You know, in 1861, the Tsar of Russia proclaimed that serfdom was at an end in Russia and that all of the landowners, the boyars as they were called in Russia, were to give of their land to the serfs that were on their land so that they could become independent small farmers. The government would compensate the boyars for their loss. Well, you can imagine what they did. They didn't walk out to their property and say, you wonderful people have served me so well, so I'm going to carve up the best of my land and give it to you. No, they gave them all the junk. You know, the ravine over here and the, the dry land with no rain on it over there and the cruddiest land they gave to the peasants. And of course, what happened? The peasants weren't able to make a decent living. They still lived in poverty. They couldn't pay the taxes, so the government could recoup its losses for paying for these boyars for, for releasing the serfs. I mean, it's human nature. Human nature is to keep the best for yourself and give anybody else the worst. And God says, I am going to cut right across human nature. You have got to give the best to me in every instance. You've got to give that finest lamb. We're going to be talking about the sacrifice of the red heifer when we get into the 19th chapter. This was to be the finest animal of the whole herd. You have to give the finest. You know, that prize winner, that one that's supposed to sire a new strain, you have to give that one to the Lord. And, and then as the recipient Levites, you had to give the best part of that to the priest, who had to give the best part of that to the Lord on the altar. God loves to do that. Because that's the only way he can shape us in the image of God. Because God gave his best. He gave his son for us. And he will not tolerate us just giving the junk in his name. You know, and, and uh, we get our paycheck and we say, well, Lord, if there's anything left at the end, maybe we'll give it to you. And the Lord says, oh, goody. <laughs> you will continue to live in your meager ways. Because God can't bless that. God never blesses iriness or stinginess or sin. He will only bless obedience. He wants to shape us in the image of Christ. 
And, and so this is what he's teaching these people. You're going to serve me as Levites. You're going to serve me as priests. You're going to be an example to these people. You're going to give the best to me. It's going to burn up on the altar, Lord. What good is that? Cooking. I mean, what difference does it make whether it's a crippled lamb or a, a good lamb if you're just going to burn the thing up? We're practical, aren't we? <laughs> Pragmatic Americans. God says, do it, and you'll see what will happen. You burn up that, that prize you that would, would, would be the mother of another whole strain, and God says, I'll give you a better strain. Delich, who is a 19th century commentator, ties this all together. He says this, the whole nation was to make a practical acknowledgement <clears throat> in the presentation of the tithe and first fruits that it had received its hereditary property as a gift from the Lord. So the Levites, by their paying of the tenth to the priests, and the priests, by presenting a portion of their revenues upon the altar, were to make a practical confession that they had received all their revenues from the Lord and owed him praise and adoration in return. God is the source of all blessing. I cannot say, as Nebuchadnezzar did when he stood on top of his palace in Babylon, is this not Babylon which I have built? Is this not my little kingdom that I have built? You know, I've established this company and it's doing so well and I'm a self-made man. There's no such thing as a self-made man or a self-made woman. We have what we have because of the blessing of God. If we have talent, where did we get it? Did we, did we create that talent within us? No, God gave us that talent that we use in a practical way. And God wants us to acknowledge that. The last verse that I read in this chapter, verse 32, let me read it again. You shall bear no sin by reason of it when you have offered the best of it, but you shall not profane the sacred gifts of the sons of Israel, lest you die. God speaks powerfully to the priests and Levites here. He's not going to let them get away with being stingy because the people have made this sacrifice. The people have obediently brought this animal in, this, this grain in, this wine in, this oil in. They've obediently done this. And then you, as the priest, gonna, I'm going to keep this for myself. You're going to profane that sacrifice? No way, God says. You do that and you're dead. It's one of the things about the Old Testament that um, is pretty final. God deals with disobedience, with ha, coup de gras, you know, it's the end of the line. Uh, you won't do that again. He's more gracious. Oh, I, I don't want to use that word. God is no different today than he was then. In fact, the Old Testament tells us that there were times, particularly prior to the law of Moses, where God, you know, didn't really come down hard on everybody. But, but today, you and I can be stingy, and we may not die immediately as a result of it, but we may wish we had because of what God will have to do to us and in us in order to accomplish his will. Because he's not going to stop sandpapering us. He's going to keep doing it. As long as there's rough edges, he's going to keep working on them. And sometimes that's not a pleasant thing. But let me at least introduce the concept here that's taught in the 19th chapter. At first, it sounds like a really strange um, ritual here. And, and it is so different from others. It's very unique. But there's so much important truth here. So let me read the first 10 verses of the 19th chapter. Then the Lord spoke to Moses and Aaron, saying, 
This is the statute of the law which the Lord has commanded, saying, Speak to the sons of Israel that they bring you an unblemished red heifer in which is no defect and on which a yoke has never been placed. And you shall give it to Eliezer the priest. And next, verse 4. Next, Eliezer the priest shall take some of the blood of its blood with his finger and sprinkle some of its blood towards the front of the tent of meeting seven times. Then the heifer shall be burned in his sight. Its hide and its flesh and its blood with its refuse shall be burned. And the priest shall take cedar wood and hyssop and scarlet material and cast it into the midst of the burning heifer. The priest shall then wash his clothes and bathe his body in water and afterwards come into the camp. But the priest shall be unclean until evening. The one who burns it shall also wash his clothes in water and bathe his body in water and shall be unclean until the evening. Now a man who is clean shall gather up the ashes of the heifer and deposit them outside the camp in a clean place. And the congregation of the sons of Israel shall keep it as water to remove impurity. It is purification from sin. And the one who gathers the ashes of the heifer shall wash his clothes and be unclean until evening. And it shall be a perpetual statute to the sons of Israel, to the alien, and to the alien who sojourns amongst them. As you read through the Old Testament, you will discover the possible source of practices within certain denominations of, quote, Christianity. Not that that's what they were intended to be by God, but what the church has decided they are going to label it to be. You all know probably that if you go into the Catholic Church, you dip your fingers in, the, in this holy water and you sprinkle it on you. And, and you can see where there might be some root of that in, in this concept here, although they don't go out and burn a cow and, and put its ashes in the water. Also, um, not today, won't have time, but there's a doctrine that's very prominent, not only in the Catholic Orthodox churches, but even creeping in amongst Protestant churches, the doctrine of purgatory. And the doctrine of purgatory in, in many ways is related to to some of what we're going to uh, be talking about here. It, it, it really has no root in, in this passage, but you can see how the distortion comes uh, through teachings like this. God has already given in the book of Leviticus a whole series of rituals and sacrifices that were to be made for specific needs and specific kinds of sin and for the nation as a whole, for uh, for individuals, uh, daily sacrifices that were to be made. And, and God has spelled this all out. But now he injects something new and something different and totally different from the other kinds of sacrifices. For one thing, I mean, which stands out, and I'll be talking about this uh, next Sunday, but this is a female. And that's not common to the sacrifices. And it's, it's a bull. That's not, I mean, they did sacrifice a bull, but that's not so common either. And there are several things about this which are so different, but, but they are a picture of something that is of vital importance. You know, something we don't think about today. The concept of ceremonially, un, being ceremonially unclean. You know, today we don't think about that because, you know, ceremony isn't the big deal to us. But there's a little bit of that teaching in the... Uh, Corinthian chapter that deals with the, uh, the communion, the Eucharist. 
Uh, not that by touching a dead body you're going to be uh, unable to take the communion, but being in your heart, in our hearts, not prepared to come before the Lord in, in this sacrament. And in this chapter, we, we deal with ceremonial unclean, uncleanness. And although it's foreign to us in, in our normal thinking, it was very important to Israel. And it wasn't because God was interested in ceremony. It was because God was interested in the heart and being obedient to him and understanding the importance of sin and the significance of sin. That's what this is all about. Why all this blood? Why, why killing of goats and killing of sheep and killing of bullocks and killing of turtle doves and all this bloody stuff? Why? The answer is in the heinousness of sin. They couldn't understand how horrible sin was until they saw the awful price that had to be paid. And it's the only way we can understand why Jesus Christ would come and bleed on a cross. Just to understand how awful sin really is in God's eyes. Sin will cast us into outer darkness forever. Now, there are branches of the, quote, Protestant church today that have done away with that. You know, it's not that they've thrown hell out. It's just that they say, when you get there, you're extinguished. It's like, poof. It's like a straw dropped in the fire. You go, and you're gone. Because, you see, they can't deal with the fact that God is serious about this whole thing. That it's just not a matter of, well, you know, I didn't live a good life, and so God's going to blot me out. No big deal. Maybe I don't get to live in he heaven forever and ever, but I'm gone. You know, it's as if I never lived. Well, if those were the two choices, you know, there wouldn't be. <laughs> Most people wouldn't have any particular drive to become people of faith. The scripture clearly teaches that hell is eternal. There is no way to get around it. In fact, we were listening recently to Erwin Lutzer, who preached a message, a whole series of messages on Satan and, and hell. And it's scary, you know, if you're not a believer. I mean, hell is a real thing, and it's eternal. And people are consciously in that forever. Now, of course, what is forever? Time, time is no more. So it's a constant state situation, but it's not pleasant. And, and so all these things were done so people would realize this truth and would choose to be obedient to God because that's what Scripture is all about. Well, next week we're going to uh, pick up with this 19th chapter and uh, look at this, this new ritual that God has instituted and why it was so significant to Israel.